From The Advocate magazine, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and you're listening to LGBTQ&A. Today, I'm talking to DeRay McKesson. DeRay is a civil rights activist, one of the most recognizable faces in the Black Lives Matter movement, and the author of On the Other Side of Freedom. We talk about what the Black Lives Matter movement has accomplished, what's still being worked on, and then DeRay poses a really interesting question that he says he doesn't have an answer to, and that is that when Donald Trump is no longer president, and that suddenly doesn't mean everything's going to be okay, when that happens, and when the threat is less overt, will we still be as mobilized to do something about it as we are now? So that conversation is coming up. But before we get to it, if you've not yet subscribed to the podcast, please do that. We have new interviews with the most interesting and influential members of the LGBTQ community every week. And when you subscribe and leave a comment on iTunes, that is one of the biggest ways you can help our show grow. Thank you for that. All right, without further ado, here's DeRay. The majority of people got to know you at Ferguson during the protest after Michael Brown was murdered, and your whole life changed after that. Up until that point, what did you expect to be doing with your life? You know, I spent so much of my career working on issues of children, youth, and families. That was like my thing. I taught sixth grade math, opened up an after-school center, worked in the school system in Baltimore. And when Mike Brown was killed, I was working in Minneapolis public schools. So like kids were, that was like my focus. That was my thing. The only reason I went to St. Louis was because they killed a kid, you know, he's a teenager. And I was like, these are the same young people that I spent my entire career trying to make sure they had great teachers and great principals and uh, the best custodians and the best nurses. So that's what I like thought about for the long haul. You know, I was at a point in my career where I was like, I did this work in a big school system. I did it in a smaller school system. I was trying to figure out like what my next sort of thing would be in public education. Um, And then, you know, everything changed. Are your students surprised at where you've ended up? I don't know. You know, it's interesting. We did a uh, we had a book event in New York, and one of my students, I like invited one of my students who I saw like literally in a cupcake shop. I walk in, I'm like, Jeremy. <laughs> He's like, Mr. McKesson. I'm like, Oh my god. He's the first kid I ever met. Like we were on the playground, like straight up a TV show. Him and uh, another one of his friends at the time walk up to us, and me and Miss Bales are together, and um, and he's like, Are you going to be our teachers? And we were like, Yes. And I was like, Twenty. You're like, Oh my goodness. You're like a man. I taught math, so we didn't have these like deep race discussions in class because I taught math. Uh, so it is cool to be an adult. Uh, it's cool for them to be an adult. When you were a teacher and then administrator, were you out of the closet then, like to the kids? Yeah, administrator. I was never a school administrator. I worked at the district level, so I like ran all of human capital for the school system. Oh, interesting. Um, and then I like worked in the central office. So I was not like a principal or assistant principal. My sister's a principal in elementary school. Um, was I out when I was a teacher? I wasn't. When I was a teacher, I like hadn't. I didn't date anybody until I didn't kiss anybody or do anything until my second year in the classroom, actually. Oh, really? So One of the students. <laughs> Stop. Okay, okay, okay. Delete, delete. Um, yeah, until, until I was like, it was when I was in New York City, yeah. So, like, I wasn't, oh, wow. I wasn't like, in, out. I, like, had never dated anybody. Uh, you no, were out to yourself then, though? Yeah, I was out to myself. Okay. I was out to myself. So, I, so, no, I wasn't out in the classroom. And then at home, and when I moved back, the after-school program, I don't know. Like, I wasn't, I hadn't dated anybody. Like, the... The brief relationship I had in New York ended. And then 
I think when I'm when I was in Minneapolis, I was though. Like when I left the school system, I think when I like went to the school system. So I I came back, opened up an after school center, and then I trained and supported new teachers. And I was then like it was like really clear. I was like very publicly gay then. And then in your book, it's the first time that you've written about being gay. Yeah, I don't. I know this is like a weird question, but like, is there a reason for that? This this is the first time now. You know, I think about. I never wanted people to um, two things. One is that, and I've said this one before, is that I, I didn't want anybody to think that the only way to do work publicly around social justice was to hide, right? So, like, it was important to me to be publicly out very early. I think that one of the reasons that I hesitated in writing about being gay is that I've lived a pretty public life in my peers, in my peer group since I was, a, since I was really young because of student government, and I was, like, the president of like my middle school and the high school and college and da, da, da. and like uh, love was like the only thing that was mine. It was like the only thing I never had to share. It was the only thing that I didn't have to talk about all day. It was like everything else everybody knew. People knew my parents were addicted to drugs. People knew I came from Baltimore. People knew, like you knew my sister. You knew, like there was nothing else that was just mine. Like you saw me on campus, you knew my friends, like whatever. But love was like the one thing that like I only shared with the people really closest to me. It was the only topic that like only the people who really knew me, we talked about. And I knew other people talked about it, but I didn't care because like I think what is so I'm proud of that chapter. The hard part is that there are no there are no longer any things that only uh, I have, you know, and it's like a, so that is actually a weird thing about the book is that this was like the last thing that was like just mine to like um I just didn't publicly engage conversation about love. Well, I would push back and say that you talk about being gay, but you don't actually talk about any like specific relationships. It's like because I have had a ton. A, <laughs> <laughs> can't talk about it. I've like had probably two serious relationships, and they were too recent to write about them. But like, I would oh. clearly be writing about like a person, and that was too much. Gotcha. Are you single now? Mm-hmm. I imagine that you cannot use dating and hookup apps. No, but Jack, Jack supported me when I ran for mayor, which is very sweet. They sent out like a nationwide alert. Wait, who is Jack? Huh, jacked, like the dating. Oh, Jack. Like oh, nice. I was like, Twitter Jack? <laughs> like, That's not for dating, right? <laughs> That'll be a rumor. Like, Dre, I guess this is Jack. Uh, no, Jacked. The oh, that's app, very funny. Like, reached out and they totally like supported the campaign, like, very kind. Gotcha. If I was your friend, I would not recommend <laughs> I don't think it'd end well. Um, <laughs> tell me this. I hear two conflicting things on this podcast about the black community. And one is that they are incredibly homophobic on the whole. And the other one is that the black community is not homophobic. It's just a myth. And I wonder what your experience is in terms of that. I think people are homophobic. So I think that like that is real. I think that uh, black people probably talk about the homophobia in black communities because that's the communities we live in and grow in, right? I think that there is something interesting about the way that homophobia in black churches has like just seeped into culture and like what that, how that shows up, what it means, how you feel it, like especially given the historical role of the black church is like a cultural institution. So I think that there, there's something interesting there as a site of like interrogation. You know, I think that there's also a way that masculinity has been policed in blackness that is just like a, has for so many people been a mechanism of survival. So you think about what does it mean to grow up in neighborhoods where like knowing how to fight isn't just like a sort of a nice to have, it's like a necessity, right? Or like that physical, being able to protect yourself physically is actually like, and to be able to present yourself in like a traditionally masculine way is something that helps you like stay alive. So it's no, it's not like a, 
it's not like a, oh, this is like a cool thing to do today. This is like a survival technique, right? Yeah. And I think that the confluence of those things make the way that homophobia shows up in blackness different. It adds a texture and a context. Uh, but homophobia is like present in all communities, right? It's just like the way it manifests might be different. And that's a great example of how we feel comfortable telling single stories about marginalized communities only, right? There's plenty of white people who are homophobic, but we would never say white people are homophobic. Right. I also think that we don't see a lot of people of color who are queer represented in the media. And so like the very like few stories we get portray, let's say, homophobia in the black community. And so we just assume like, oh, that's all stories. Yeah. And like, how do we start to talk about homophobia uh, that is like less overt? You know, people have like a, people know that like calling you a faggot, people know that like, those are the really overt ways that we like understand. One of the ways that homophobia shows up in women, for instance, is this idea that you're like an accessory, right? You're like a really cool pair of earrings or like a cool purse. And like the moment that you become, the moment that you no longer are, are adorning something, like you actually aren't valuable anymore, right? And that's like a, that is like a way that people like manage power and proximity, right? Um, what does it mean when it's like, the homophobia that's like, I love you, but like, I hope my kid's not gay. You know, that is like not love either. Right. And I'm interested in like how we start to bring those things to the public conversation. I think about one of the things that I get in the movement is this idea that like, I can't be strong, can't be transformational, can't be like, I can't have a radical thought, can't be, have a revolutionary thought. Cause I'm gay. That like, it just, I'm actually stripped of every marker of strength. Like it just like doesn't exist anymore. You think that that is put on you? Oh no, I know it. That is like, oh, people's, really? like yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised because, um, like Black Lives Matter, for example, is a movement with many leaders by design. And then yet you are one of the most recognizable faces. And those are weird characteristics to apply to a like a leader in the movement. Yeah, but I also get the like, I, I don't like gay people, but I like you. And you're like, well, that doesn't really work, right? That like, I don't, I'm not like a landing spot for your hate. I'm not like the safe space for your hate. Yeah. Or oh, it's like, the, oh, I like one gay person. It's fine. Yeah. You're like, oh, no, you're good. It's no, I can like, sleep tonight. I promise. Like, uh, me, I don't want to sleep with you anyway. You know what I mean? It's like, that's like not a, like, you think that everybody's like hitting on you. It's like, I'm not hitting on you. Like, this is not, this isn't, it, isn't it? I said that you were one of the most recognizable faces in the Black Lives Matter movement. Is there tension there? I think that there is, you know, I'm mindful that the visibility uh, in the platform that I have was like sudden. I know that it exists in, um, that it exists to do like work that's bigger than me, that that is real. I think that there are people who uh, who think the visibility is a lot of things that it isn't, um, and people who like, you know, they'll see me with uh, they saw the picture of me and Beyonce, or they see the picture of me and whatever, and they don't realize that in all of these rooms we're like talking about justice in the work. Like it's not, you know, we're not like planning barbecues, you know. And I think that people think that. Uh, we're just like partying all day and you're like, no, we're like actually just talking about like we're, we're texting about, you know, so I think about the one in five black men in Florida can't vote. It's a lot of felon disenfranchisement, almost two million people. Uh, it's on the ballot this November, which is huge. And they needed 700,000 petitions to get signed, uh, which is like a big undertaking. They had a lot of partners who were helping them out. And when we started to support them, it was like, well, what can we do, right? And it's like, I text Lady Gaga, I text Katy Perry, got in touch with Jay's team. And we're like, well, you open up the concert halls because you you're, you have concerts before the deadline. Will you open it up and let them gather petitions like at the venue? And they did, right? And they got thousands of petitions in one fell swoop in ways that like you just can't do at a grocery store, right? And that's what like 
that's what that's how I think about using the visibility as service, right? They're like, yes, I know these people. They want to do good work. How can I help them like plug in in a way that is meaningful? That's not just like a random Instagram post or like whatever. But it's like when Gaga is like, you know, Gaga texts me. She's like, Dre, can I go to the table? I'm like, what's well, your, you can do whatever It's your concert. And like, thank you for shouting it out, right? Like, thank you for like allowing them to enter the space. And like your fans now know that you believe in these things. It takes no work for people to sign up. You know, it's like beautiful. And like, those are the things that are like really interesting. I don't talk about those as much publicly because like there's no... We got what we needed, right? So I don't need to go on a tour being like, and I called it like, because that's not how I do the work. The hard part is in the absence of talking about it, people like fill these narratives. It's like, Dre's just going to parties. And you're like, no, we're like, I'm trying to figure out how to plug people in and, tr- and knowing that like, I'm not everybody's best entrance, right? That like, enter into the work however you can, right? And like, some of what I can do is actually like, put you in the right direction to go to the person that really will be a better interest for you yeah. entrance. And like, I know that. That's a great point because you in the back of the book, thank Beyonce, Solange, Colin Kaepernick, and having no other information, I just assume that you're like getting wasted on Friday nights together. So like Solange was there when I got out of jail. She, her and Alan were like there, they were there, you know? And like, there were a lot of people who weren't there. There are a lot of people who like didn't think Baton Rouge was important. There are a lot of people who like, you know, when I got arrested and when we all got arrested and it's national news and everybody's like, Baton Rouge is so important. But like, they, it wasn't worthy enough to come down, you know, before the cameras. It wasn't. And Solange was like, I got out. I like walked into the house. I'm like, I Solange. You know, she was there. So when I think about that, Beyonce reached out a long time ago, like wait, you know, when we were in the street in Baltimore and like continues to quietly support protesters all across the country. Uh and like you think about the Colin, I remember when Colin reached out. So I I try to like acknowledge people who like have done real things, you know. And also with your growing fame, for lack of better words, there is power to be able to like command media attention. Yeah, and I think about too, like I'm mindful. I'm only I only do like the news things to like I'm either defending or explaining, you know. So they're like, you know, in Baltimore when it was there was property damage, and I'm on the news, and people are like pissed. And I'm saying, like, you know, broken windows aren't the same thing as broken spines, right? Like, that's like a, I'm, like, doing a lot of work to try and, like, craft this narrative in the protest space that, like, helps people understand, like, what we mean. So when people ask me, you know, a new question I'm getting recently, I don't know why, four years later, people are like, you know, why a focus on black people, right? Like, isn't it, it's like the new variation on All Lives Matter, but it's like a gentler version. And it's like, the reality is that like the outcomes are so bad for black people and like so disproportionate that if we fix it for black people, we actually fix it for everybody else. Like we do in one fell swoop. And it's like just helping people like get the language sometimes to be on board is what I think about like all of the media things that I've done, like all the news way back in the day. The very first news thing I ever did in Ferguson was when, uh, the officers got shot at the Ferguson Police Department, which, like, you probably don't even remember. But I was there that night, and I get on the news, and Chief Belmar is, like, raging against the protesters. He's like, I know they did it, da, da, da. And I'm like, and I remember I had, like, 20 minutes to prepare. And I'm like, you know, it's his statements are the same, like, type of prejudicial policing that, like, got us in the street in the first place. So, like, how can he confidently say, who shot anybody? It just had, it happened 20 minutes ago. Like, but it's this idea that the police can just like determine whatever truth they want. That is like what we, that's the root of what our problem is. Right. And like it, being on the news and on the shows, it's like, that's what I'm always, I'm not on the show being like, I went shopping with like, that's like not, nobody's ever seen me do that. Cause that's, I wear this, I'm pretty basic. You know, I'm like wearing the same thing every day, pretty chill. 
With Ferguson, I think everyone's always wondering, people at home, like, how do I help? What do I do? And they feel helpless and they do nothing. In your instance, you saw what was happening in Ferguson and you got in your car and drove nine hours and joined the protests. It, it like If people are able to, should they do that? Is that going to be helpful even? Like if like thousands do that? Yeah, so thousands did do that, which was like what made Ferguson matter. Or thousands more, I guess. Yeah. Like, is I think that, that helpful? I think I'm mindful that like all the best organizing starts off like small. You know, it's like... I like got in the car, drove, didn't know, like I didn't have a plan. I didn't. I was just like, I'm, you know, the first thing I did in St. Louis was make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I made dope peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Very good at I can't cook. So peanut butter and jelly sandwiches is like one of the few things that I can like make very good every time. And, and like, you didn't see that though. You know, people don't, people see, people hear this podcast. They didn't see me making sandwiches. They didn't see me sleeping on like an air mattress in a random person's house. Like they didn't see those things. But the best organizing starts off with like a couple of us sitting in a room being like, I think we can do this thing. And then we like start to do that thing. And like, that's actually like really cool. And so when people, it's like, what can you do? It's like, you should actually like figure out whatever you already care about. And like the thing, the hardest part, when I think about like what we all did in St. Louis that was different and special was that we walked into the risk. We said, we don't know, we don't know everything, but we know Mike Brown should be alive today. That's like what we know, right? And like, we're going to walk into that truth every single day. And like we did, you know, so you don't know the failed, you know, we planned a lot of things that didn't, didn't really work, but you know, the big things that did work. And like, it was a lot of trial and error. We didn't know what we were doing. We learned quickly. We failed quickly. Um, And I think sometimes I worry that the way that activism has become sort of like cool, which is not, you know, as if it's cool and meaningful, that's fine, is that uh, people forget that it's like a lot of grunt work. You know, it's a lot of like, it's a lot of very non-glamorous stuff. As opposed to just like adding it to your Instagram bio and calling yeah, it Yeah, this is like, I think about like all the nights, you know, like we were in the street for 400 days. So like most of the nights it was like cold and dark and not a lot of people outside, but we were like still present, right? People can recount like the 10 days where it was like total chaos, you know, or the days when we shut down the Walmart to the days when we shut down the casino or like, you know, like that's what people can remember. But it's like the majority of days were like it was like a constant presence. It's like we're going to be out here again and again and again and again. I didn't realize it also lasted that long. I know. It's really unfortunate because people like remember the initial protest in Ferguson as like a weekend. Like they like play it back as like, wow, that thing happened. You're like, no, so long. It's like so many, you know, and I'm proud to say that I was one of many people, you know, like just in the street with the, the, if it wasn't for Keith and the bail fund folks, nobody would have got out of jail. If it wasn't for Mama Cat feeding people, like people wouldn't eat, you know, like there were so many people whose roles were really incredible. My role was to help tell a truth, like as public as possible. And with these street medics and safe houses you write about, were those things that you discovered once you were there? You're not, you were not part of a network of people ahead of time, right? No, no, no. I didn't even know. I remember I was at the very first street medic training in St. Louis. I had I'd never heard of a street medic before. I'm like, what is this? And, and the second night I was in St. Louis, there was a um, this really, really bad car accident. Like, the, because the police then like weren't they weren't really shutting down streets. It was like just bad in this really bad car accident. And I happened to be like right there when the when the cars crashed. It was like really bad. And like who came? It was the street medics. Like I remember the street medics running down, like getting them out of the car. Like the ambulances were nowhere around. I learned um, really quickly. You know, we all learned really quickly. That's really fascinating. So that's been four years since then. Four years. Have you seen the public conversation change since then? Yeah, so I think that that's where we've won, right? That like four years later, the awareness is all time high. That like people are talking about the police, people are talking about mass incarceration. It's cool to talk about them. Reporters are asking about, you know, like four years ago, reporters weren't like asking police officers any 
hard questions. It was just like softball, whatever the police said they went with. It was just like not great. Now the now the the press is doing that in a way that's really incredible. The hard part is that the outcomes haven't changed, right? That like the police are killing as many people as they were four years ago. And the question, and this is like a part of chapter three in the book, is that what we found is that there are common threads as to why police just literally aren't held accountable. And it's not like a random prosecutor here or there. It's not like a random grand jury. The rules are actually just like against us. And I didn't know until I read your book that the rules differ between different police departments and precincts. Yeah, so you think about like in California, there's a lot of this is that any investigation of an officer that lasts more than a year can never result in discipline regardless of the outcome. That's wild. You think about Maryland, there's a law that says that uh, you can file an anonymous complaint and get an officer for everything except brutality. You're like, that just doesn't make sense. Right. And I just assumed that these laws were uniform across all uh, departments. So who sets these rules? Is it like the mayors or the police chiefs? So in there are like a handful of states, like more than 12 states that have laws that are like police officer bill of rights. They have their own bill of rights at the state level, which is wild. And then the, most of the other places that we study are, it's a police union contract. It's like the union. It's like the, so like in Austin, I was just in Austin and we worked with the Austin organizers and they were great. In Austin, there's a, a, a in the contract, it says that they, um, any one, two or three day suspensions, you automatically recoded as written reprimands later. And you're like, well, I don't even, you're like, that is like the biggest sham. Like you don't get, if you get suspended at your job, it's like coded as a suspension. You know, it's not like just kidding, written reprimand so nobody will know in the future. That's like a bizarre way to think about the system, but the contracts are the places that protect the police the most. California just passed some laws to um, weaken those rules, for lack of better words. Like that is a solution, right? Like where governors can do that. Yeah, so the legislature here led it to yes. do, there's like a big secrecy law. So uh, New York is one of, I mean, uh, New York is one of them. New York, Delaware, and California, the three states that have these laws that almost guarantee that police officer records will be just sealed, sealed from everybody, sealed from other police departments, sealed from the public, sealed permanently. And now in California, they will be unsealed in 45 days, I believe. Yeah, so now in California, there's like a law that is like peeling that back, That's which huge. is huge. But again, what California didn't pass was like a new use of force standard. Like there, there's some more aggressive things that can happen that are like common sense. In California, well, we, you know, we did an analysis of police union donations and police unions give almost as much as any other lobbying group here in the city of California to a lot of people. So they still have a lot of sway um, more than you would think they would. And, you know, people are still really wary of like even criticizing the police that like, you know, if teach, could you imagine if there was like a rash of teachers throwing kids downstairs in schools? People would be like, we need to change the profession. Da, da, da. When the police do things, you're like, people are just like, oh, that's like in the name of safety. And you're like, well, that sounds crazy. Did you, have you seen Zootopia? No. Do you, you know, why haven't you seen Zootopia? I don't know. Have you seen, <laughs> did you see Bright on Netflix? Yes. No, no, bad I know what that movie. is though, but did no. Did you see Bad Boys? <laughs> no. Bad boys? I'm bad at pop culture. <laughs> Woo! Okay, I'm trying to think about like another. Um, what's another one? Um, are you've you seen know? SVU. You've seen. It's interesting the way that the the media, like mass media, has just inculcated these these notions of policing. So you think uh, about like any ver any movie or any show you've ever seen with internal affairs. Any internal affairs is always the bad guy. Like the thought that there are people like holding police officers accountable inside, they're always a the bad guy. You hate them. They're like. They're like the cops that nobody trusts. Like they, and like that actually sends a message. Like you, you as a viewer are like imbibing a message about like holding people accountable. That the police are actually just so great that the thought of holding them accountable is like 
crazy. That's right? fascinating. Well, you even you didn't see Zootopia, but Zootopia, Bad Boys, and Bright, what they have in common, and Zootopia is a cartoon, is that all of them have these scenes, and you've seen another movie, you've seen other movies with this, where like the police are literally like running through people's neighborhoods, knocking people over, shooting in the crowds, like doing all this stuff in the name of safety, in the name of justice. They're like, we're gonna get the bad guy. You're like, I don't, if the bad guy means that you have to like run through that person's front door and like bust their house open, and they're like a random bystander, that actually like is too too high of a cost for justice right but those are like seated in these like cartoons you know they're seated in like all of pop culture and part of our work is to name those things so like obviously the show cops was bad it's like yes it's bad to like show cops like you know arresting people like that but it's like more insidious to think about like what does it mean that every internal affairs department you've ever seen in any movie is like they're the bad guys that actually sends a message yeah, I mean, we talk about all the time about representation for LGBTQ people and how that affects you. So it makes perfect sense that police representation and uh, how they're depicting internal affairs also. All of it. Affects. Oh, like, what does it mean? In Zootopia, which you haven't seen in this cartoon, as you just see, is like, she's like, somebody steals the onion. It's like a whole thing. She's like running through the miniature, there's like a miniature neighborhood. She's like running through it, destroying stuff. And you're like... Even in cartoons, it's like this idea that like if the police are trying to catch the bad guy, they can do whatever they want. You're like, that is a really wild way to think about justice was there a moment when you realized that what you experience as a black man is not the universal human experience i don't know if i use those phrases i think that like i totally understood a race and i was like whoa because i always grew up in a predominantly black community up until sixth grade and then we moved to like a predominantly white community for school my father moved us and it was like, I remember being in school and like, you know, the thing about the advice to all teachers is like, remember that kids often have the stories before they have the language, right? They have the experience before the language. And like when I got to middle school, I like all of a sudden saw we had tracked classes. I don't know if you had, did you have track classes? Like standard honors, gifted and talented or whatever. Did yeah. you have like track? So in our school, it was like the standard class, which was the lowest class, all black. It was like literally like Everybody was in standard. And then there were like a couple of us in honors and like almost nobody in gifted and talented, right? And it was the first time that I like for my in my own life was like, whoa, something is going on here. Like and I remember going through the process of like being told that those kids just weren't smart, right? It was like, well, that's why they're in standard. And you're like, no, but then I saw like a white kid's mom come up and demand that her kid get in gifted and talented, and like they got in gifted. Like it wasn't this actually was a matter of like who knew how to navigate the system. But like, and I write about it in the book, is that my father never thought about education as a system to be navigated, right? Like he didn't think about it as like a place you go and advocate for kids. It was like a place where kids just learned and like it just worked. And it and it's like what white affluent parents understood is like they fought for their kid to get an AP psych and yeah. AP da 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 da. So that was like my first experience with seeing like how classes were distributed and like every single black kid. We were like, it was like four of us who weren't, um, who like weren't in standard classes, which was like wild. Oh, that's fascinating to see it so broken up too by race with like that hierarchy. Like AP Psych, it was me and Tanisha. Yeah, it was like really wild to watch. When I asked about how like the public conversation is changing in the last four years, I think that f- I think that like the tell me if I'm wrong. I think the vast majority of white people would not say that they think that they're better than black people, mm-hmm. but it's just that with their actions and their money and their votes they're choosing to like participate in white supremacy for lack of better words and uphold those systems of oppression right because that's comfortable 
Yeah, I mean, I think that like white people benefit from it, right? So it's yeah. one thing to like emotionally be like, this is bad. It's another thing to be like, I might lose my stuff, right? So like four years ago, I probably couldn't have said that I'd benefit from it. I mean, I would just say like, I'm not racist. So like, what's the big deal? Right. Yeah, do you think that what what is interesting about this moment is that white people are like more organized and more ready than ever before. And that is a good thing. Organized how? Like they're like marching. They're like sitting oh. in the Senate. Like they weren't doing any of that stuff like at scale before. It was like people who identified as like, like lifelong activists were doing that stuff. But now it's like random, you know, like random house, mo- house, like random, you know, moms who would never go shut down a street or like at the women's march, right? Like that sort of stuff is different in this moment. Uh, the question is like, is will people still care when the threat isn't so overt? They're like there are a lot of people who literally believe the history of injustice began with the Muslim ban. They're like, wow, the country got bad. And you're like, mm, country's bad for a lot of people way before the Muslim ban. And like, you know, one of the things about Trump is that he's distributing the pain so haphazardly that like all of a sudden people who like never have really been threatened by the government are like losing health care. All of a sudden people who had like historically been protected are like, you know, the tech company workers are being deported. You know, it's like all of a sudden it's like I just way more people are implicated very overtly. And like one day that'll end, like he won't be the president forever. And like, will people still be mobilized in the same way? Like, I don't know. I think that's like a fair question to ask. So are you making the connection between these people who are suddenly woken up, for lack of better words, and between, let's say, like Me Too and Black Lives Matter, that all these people are suddenly realizing that like the status quo is not okay and they're reaching across to help each other? I think that the common thread is that when the protest started in 2014, what it did was that it helped people see that they, they could push and resist in ways that people told us we couldn't do before. And I think that that created space for so many other things. So you think about like, the women's march. You think about the Parkland students. You think about Me Too. You think about all these things that came after. Like there was already a framework and a heuristic to like talk about it and to describe it and to understand it. So like I saw the Parkland kids on TV and it was incredible because it was like the media actually now knows how to talk about it. Like they know how to invite an activist into the space. They know how to set it up. They know how to whatever. Whereas like, when we were in the street, it was like they just, it was, you know, they didn't know what was going on. Even the people who were on TV, like they didn't really have language. They didn't understand how to talk about a march or a protest. And like now that language is here. So I do think about Me Too. I think about Parkland. I think about all of these coming in in the space that the the initial protest in Ferguson opened. Gotcha. Um, I have to let you go, but one last question. Are you impressed that we got through a whole interview without mentioning your vest? I, uh, you know, wear the vest for me. So I'm always excited when people, uh, you know, don't make it a thing. Oh, so. fantastic. Um, thanks for being here. We did it. And that's our show. If you have not yet subscribed to the podcast, please do that right now. I also want to remind you that with the midterms coming up, GLAAD is here to help you amp your voice. They're making it easier than ever for you to access the tools you need to vote and to really speak out on the issues that matter. So to learn more and make sure that your voice is heard, go to glad.org slash amp your voice. You can also sign up for our newsletter at lgbtqpodcast.com. It has a great way to stay to date on all of our new episodes, all of our live shows. So that's lgbtqpodcast.com. We are being broadcast from the Advocate Magazine studio in Los Angeles. The Advocate is the longest running LGBT news magazine in the country. Special thank you to our old home after Buzz TV, Jason McMurdy, and everyone for listening. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'll see you next week.